From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Don't call it a comeback unless it's a huge comeback. The Gators proved themselves to the naysayers while Felipe Franks literally shushed his critics in a 17-point come-from-behind victory over South Carolina last Saturday. The late-stage revival made Florida just the fourth SEC team to have multiple comebacks of 17 points or more in the last 15 years. Now as they turn the page to Senior Day in the Swamp, the Gators are hoping for a strong performance out of the gates against Idaho. On today's show, we'll discuss the remarkable comeback, the shush heard around the world, and the degree to which former players should criticize their old teammates with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, senior Fred Johnson reflects on his career at Florida and shares some bizarre food rituals that you probably haven't heard before. But first, The Gators appeared all but dead in the third quarter on Saturday, seemingly unable to pick themselves up and make the plays that defined the early part of their season. But at some point, the situation changed, and we opened our conversation with Scott and Chris by trying to identify when the momentum definitively swung the other way. I think when P. Ryan scored the make it 31-28, you could tell the stadium kind of took on a different life. Obviously, when down 31 to 14, we've seen we've seen this before, Adam. And the Gators, they're not typically a comeback team. Uh, we saw it at Vanderbilt on the road. Obviously, Kadarius Tony's touchdown made it 31 21. But I still, at that point, I thought South Carolina, with the way they were moving the ball, you just thought that they would have another drive or two in them because the defense had really been unable to stop them for most of the game. But uh, they scored and. You know, a drive that was kept alive by a fluky play uh, that Terrebron Grimes caught. And then, uh, you know, they scored. Then it gets, what, 31-28. And then the defense does its job. And sure enough, it was one of the more memorable comeback wins uh, in Florida's recent home history. Uh, you don't see that very often. Uh, what, down 17, coming back late. And um, big win, oh, Adam, I mean, for a lot of obvious reasons. I just thought that was a game that they really had to have to kind of have the potential to finish Dan Mullen's first season with some real momentum. You just did not want to lose to South Carolina at home. It, it would have been their third straight loss. The guy on the other sidelines, Will Muschamp. So you add all those up and you get a comeback win that will uh, people will remember for a while. And Felipe Franks made it more memorable too with those shushes. To Scott's point, just Imagine if Florida had lost the game, even if come come back and lost the game, maybe late or whatever. Just the the whole narrative around the program would have just been so uh, such a downer when you think about it. You know, the three losses, the another lo- a home loss to Muschamp, um, quarterback play, uh, where this team was three weeks ago versus where they're now, and just program direction in general. That's why it was so big. And to your initial point, when did it really turn? I think for me. The Kadarius Tony touchdown made it a 10 point game. The defense absolutely had to have a stop after that. And, uh, for them to do that and come out and make that, I don't know if it was a three and out. It may have been a, it may have been a, uh, 
a first down and then three three other downs or something like that. But it was a quick stop. But the last three possessions, Adam, the defense, after giving up 250 yards in the first half, the last three possessions uh, for South Carolina's offense uh, accounted for 14 plays and 29 yards. Hmm. I don't think there was any reason to think that was going to happen uh, midway through the third period uh, as they built that 17-point lead. But in terms of turning it around, it was what the defense did. But having said that, you still got to make some plays on offense and the and the running game gets a bunch of credit. Uh, Felipe Franks gets a bunch of credit for just sticking it out. And it's clear from how they react around him and how they defend him on social media that he's a popular guy on the team. And uh, people can say what they want to say, but and it's a cliche when people say, oh, I got you back, I got you back. You never really know if they got it or they're stabbing you in it. But uh, uh, it would seem that uh, these guys have Felipe Franks back and they defend him and uh, – they play hard for him, um, and you know he's he's not going to make the best of throws all the time. But I tell you what, he's a willing runner, and he makes some big plays with his legs. And this is the guy who Dan Dan Mullen has uh, has said is going to give them the best chance to win. So this is the guy who's going to ride out the rest of the season. Right now, he's the uh, he's the quarterback of record for a team that's won seven games and has a really good chance to make it eight, make it nine, and hell, maybe even make it ten. Well, and I'm going to talk about that too, because that's really kind of the story from this game is the, the Franks and the shushing. As soon as I saw it happen, I, I knew this was going to be dominating the conversation. And it's sort of interesting because you have his perspective on it, talks about his emotion, talks about the way he plays the game. And then Dan Mullen's saying this is something that sort of comes with the territory. And then you've got the outsiders. You have, you know, the social media trolls who have an opinion. Uh, you know, Luke Del Rio has an opinion. We'll talk about that a little later. So it's really like a, a whole ecosystem here all around Franks, which, you know, that that's not what anybody wants. You want it to be about the team, but the, the subplot of Franks, his performance and the perception of him, it really seems to be driving a lot of the conversation right now. That's the world these guys live in. It's an age of social media. And, you know, when you do something like that, obviously, Felipe Fra- Franks brought it the attention to himself. But, uh, you know, Chris and I talked about this after the game on Facebook Live. And I agree that, you know, fans are going to sit there and boo Felipe Franks. That's their right. You know, they, they paid their, their money to get into the stadium. But, hey, I don't have a problem with him. Touching the crowd if he does something well. I mean, it obviously bothered him, uh, all those boos and all the criticism on social media for fans and media. So it goes both ways. Uh, he said it was a, it's a two-way street, and I agree with him on that point. Doesn't mean that he won't get booed on Saturday if he throws a, a bad <laughs> interception early. That, But that's just the way it works these days, and it's the way it's always worked. But what it just is magnified in today's hyper-technological world that we live in. Nothing goes unseen. I mean, LaMichael P. Ryan, after the game, he comes out and says, guess what? I hushed people, too. <laughs> and you didn't see it during the game, but then after I went back and looked at some pictures, sure enough, there's Michael or LaMichael P. Ryan hushing them. But that's not going to get the attention the starting quarterback gets. And uh, Felipe Franks has been a, as polarizing as any player on this team for a couple of years now. He's kind of learned on the job. It's had its ups and downs. That was an up form. He kind of relished the moment, you could tell. But he also made some tough plays. I mean, he played with an energy, a passion, anger, whatever you want to call it. It was obvious from early in that game that Felipe Franks came to play. And, you know, that first drive, he he had a really bad pass to end of the drive. It had the punt. The boost came out. And I think that even motivated him more. you know, Dan Mullen said afterward, 
it's maybe not what he would have wanted to see, but he didn't jump on him too too uh, harshly in public, at least. And, you know, we'll see if it changes anything going forward. I talked to some people about it, some friends that are Gator fans or whatever, and, and Scott used the word polarized. I mean, you, you see, there are people, he can't do that. He can't do that. Well, I've heard you say some bad things about him as a player. Why can't the guy defend himself when he does something well? Well, he well he didn't play well in the game. All right, well, you know, he scored the winning touchdown in a game that they won the game. So um, he's allowed to do that. And but he has to understand that with that comes ramifications. So uh, he may get booed this week if he throws for 300 yards. For all I know, <laughs> uh, there's people. There may, may still be people that that are mad at him. They're not mad at the Gators. Maybe they're mad at him. You know, and clearly, I don't want to say that he doesn't care because he obviously does. But when you're a quarterback, you need some thicker skin. And I I don't know that that's going to develop with him this year. I think he's kind of cast himself there and. Um, uh, with how he's going to be, it was funny. I, I was the day after the game, I was walking on campus and uh, I see this uh, moped coming up the hill there on Frat Row. And I'm walking down by the, the ROTC look and I see it coming up. I go, damn, that's that's Felipe Franks riding a moped. I kind of stopped and I just kind of started giving him a golf clap as he drove by. <laughs> and he slowed his thing down and he he knows me just from seeing me every now and then. I'm a, a member of the media, but he's He's driving by and one paying attention and kind of double take a double and looked and stopped and, and gave a wave. So I think he'll appreciate if people appreciate him a little more. But uh, at the same time, you know, he, he he is living in this bubble under this microscope. And if he's going to do stuff like shush the crowd, then, you know, it, then he has to be ready for, for what else is going to come his way. And apparently he was and he was OK with it. But um, <laughs> there's still three more games to play, so there can be some more terms. Who knows? He may have something. Uh, he may have something else in store if he uh, if he throws like three touchdown passes in the game this week. And I'll tell you what, uh, I'll I'll be interested to see it, and we'll certainly uh, write about it. I'll let Scott Scott will write the hell out of it. I bet like he did, <laughs> like he did last week. Hopefully he'll hopefully he'll pull out his phone like the That's right. game. That's right. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah. He could tweet the fans or something from the. He'll have his cell phone under the goalpost like the New Orleans Saints did with his. The ode to Joe Horn or what happened. Right. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to your point, though, kind of what both of you said, if we're looking bigger picture here on Franks, and, and for anybody who's in that position, whether he's the starting quarterback or if it's somebody else, how important is it to grow to the point where you don't feel the need to do that? Because with the scrutiny, and it's only getting worse, it doesn't seem like that's going to help him. And I think Dan Mullen was really hitting on that in his press conference. who said, hey, I, you know, there's a guy who won a national championship here named Chris Leak, and the fans were booing him when he was in the field because they wanted Tebow. I mean, th- this is not a new concept. It's just amplified. And with that amplification, it seems like it's even more important for guys to have that thick skin to where they don't feel the need to react to it and engage with it. It's just it doesn't seem like that's productive to his growth. I don't think you want to be a robot. Uh, I do think you have to compartmentalize. And I think that's something that he's in the process of trying to figure out. But at the same time, what would help him more than anything else is that if he had a game uh, against a really good team or against a good opponent where he just had a solid across the board statistical line and made some great throws and didn't put himself in a position or excuse me, didn't put the fans in a place where, you know, they can criticize him and feel good about criticizing him and uh, can look for ways to pick at his game. Uh, I think people recognize that he has a lot of uh, physical attributes that, you know, play well at the quarterback position. They just want him to make more plays. And, yeah, okay, if that means they're going to boo him, that's fine. Um, I mean, I guess it's fine. I mean, it's, 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 it's certainly their right. Going back to what I said before, it's certainly his right to have something 
to come back at, but ultimately the best thing for him to come back at would be to complete 62% of his passes, throw for 300 yards. When's the last time someone threw for 300? How many guys have thrown for 300 yards, Scott, since Tim Tebow? Uh, let's just say it hasn't happened very often. Right. And if Felipe Franks can do that, then uh, then I don't think he'll be shushing the crowd and I don't think he'll have to worry. He could be going on social media and actually see some people saying some good things about him. But there are some people that you're, you're, you're not going to change a lot of people's mind. That's where that thick skin that you mentioned has to come in, Adam. I think that's been as important as anything they worked with Felipe on. Uh, Dan Mullen and Brian Johnson is trying to develop that mental part of the game and and uh, I think Felipe does get wrapped up in the emotional side too much. As a, and as a quarterback, very few athletes, I think, can handle that whole emotional part and thrive in that environment. Quarterback might be one of the toughest positions, obviously, to do that because not only are you a leader, you're processing so much for the team's success. I mean, I, I looked at, like, Terrell Owens was that kind of athlete. He seemed to somehow thrive and like always like having people rip him. I think back to a player like in the NBA, like Isaiah Thomas was sort of like that kind of athlete. Always played with a chip on his shoulder, but very few great athletes I think can do that, at least in, in ways that Felipe did on Saturday. You know, I think what they would love to see is what you guys just spoke about. Go out and do it with 300 yards, four touchdown passes, quietly walk off the field and let that do your talking. Yeah, if you're if you're going to be the villain, and I think a couple of those guys that you named are kind of like the antiheroes of the villains, Isaiah Thomas, Terrell Owens, or whatever, Warren Sapp, or something like that. You need to uh, have some more flash plays, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, and to play into that a, l- a little bit better, and have kind of those kind of things on your on your video resume to uh, to combat it. But you know, he still has time, and he's and he's the guy in position now to uh, to do that because let's face it, we're going back to what we talked about last week. Kyle Trask isn't around, and we don't know what the plan is going forward with a quarterback, but I think it centers around Felipe Franks. So let's talk about senior day. That doesn't involve Felipe Franks, but involves a lot of guys who've had very interesting journeys through this program. Consider they were likely recruited by Will Muschamp. They then played for three years under Jim McElwain. And then their last year, their world is upended. They have to learn a whole new system and a whole new culture and play under Dan Mullen. Uh, some of these guys obviously had much higher expectations for what they might accomplish. They didn't quite reach them. But regardless, this is a senior class that has been through a lot and is pretty battle-tested after four years. But I think you said it right there, been through a lot. I think that's how this group probably is going to be remembered more than anything. Uh, you know, they had... A couple of SEC's championships. They've had a losing season. They've had three coaches. Especially for the six guys who were redshirt seniors. Mm -hmm. Those guys have had three coaches. They came under, came in under Muschamp, played for McElwain, and now are playing for Mullen. Uh, Hey, let me, let me just say they also played for DJ Durkin and Randy Shannon along the way. That's a good point. Forgot about the interim coaches. So that's amazing when you think about it. Yeah, on average, they can say, hey, yeah, I was at Florida five years. I played for five coaches, and, and they're telling the truth. Uh, that just kind of goes to show you it was a period of uh, transition, turmoil, uh, peaks and valleys for the program. And, you know, I was talking to Kerry uh, Clark a couple of nights ago after practice, and he's one of those six guys on the team who has been here five years. He's a redshirt senior, came in the most champ, as I said, and I think the biggest thing that these guys are taking out of it, who those guys who are going to be walking out uh, as seniors on Saturday, is they're not leaving on four and seven. They're going to leave out of here 
in a turnaround season, uh, revitalized the program. They played a part of that. And Dan Mullen spoke to that this week, uh, saying that, look, you know, it's so important to have the seniors buy in anytime you come into a program and you're the new guy uh, because they are leaders. He needed that buy-in from that group, and they did. And, um, you know, even this year, you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about some of the good possibilities. But, you know, last week we were talking about two straight losses. Where's this thing headed? And we opened this show by talking about a 17-point deficit late in the uh, third quarter. So you had to have some guys keep things together on that sideline. And uh, it can never hurt when uh, your leaders are, are part of that group. R.J. Raymond, I think, he's gotten a lot of attention. He's one of those guys who's been here five years. He spoke after that uh, loss to, uh, to Missouri to remind everybody in there, look, I've only got two games left at that point. Uh, you know, this is this is not the way I want to go out. And I, I think that response that we saw against South Carolina, there was something there that those guys found to solidify what R.J. Raymond was trying to get across. I want to move on to our PAT, and it uh, it involves a guy who was part of that 4-7 and seven last year that didn't go out on a, on a strong note. Well, actually, I should say it's inspired by him. It's not about him, but obviously there's been a lot of conversation about Luke Del Rio. It was brought up prominently during the game broadcast because of the comments he tweeted about Franks and what it meant for Mullen if he played him. And it all goes back to Luke Del Rio's budding media career that he is trying to build, that he's going all in on, and a lot of people are following him. And so my question, I think, is about when is it okay for athletes to criticize their former teammates, their former school, and when is it not? Because this is an interesting paradigm here in the sense that you've got some very high-profile media figures that are very closely tied to universities. For a long time, it was Kirk Herbstreet, and he famously had to move his family out of Columbus because when he criticized Ohio State, the fans went nuts on him and were harassing his family. More recently, people sometimes get upset if Tim Tebow criticizes Florida or picks against the Gators, Marcus Spears with LSU, so on and so forth. This is not a new concept. What I think makes it unique is that Del Rio is so recently removed from playing that the guys he's commenting on were his recent teammates. So my question for you guys is, what do you think the line is? When is it okay to criticize your former team, former teammates, or is it something that that media figures, if you're going into that realm, should stay away from? I mean, if you're going into the field and you're expected to be a, an analyst of some kind, then criticism is part of the deal. I mean, I you, just the last two years, and I'll, I'll step out away from college. Look at Tony Romo left and went right to the booth and was caught and called a couple Dallas Cowboy games. Same with uh, same with Jason Witten this year. I mean, mm-hmm. Jason Witten has to be critical of the Cowboys. Now he didn't have to the other night because they won, but that's gonna. And he was in the locker room with those guys. Same with Luke Del Rio. With these guys, and obviously he was in the same room with Felipe Franks. Mm-hmm. The difference in with this one is this is just a kind of weird circumstance because Luke Del Rio is basically in his closet <laughs> doing a uh, doing, doing a, a a show that a lot of people are paying attention to, and he's got some very cogent and well thought out uh, takes on things. I mean, he's he's a smart guy. He got his master's degree. His dad was an NFL coach. The guy knows what he's talking about. He knows about X's and O's and what have you, and, and has a certain knowledge of what Florida is doing and recognizes it. But your question, he goes back to your question, is it okay? Well, it's okay if you can deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. Because the teammates are the ones who are going to be looking at you with a stink eye. 
Now, he's up in New York City or in Manhattan, wherever he is. He doesn't have to see Felipe Franks. He doesn't have to see LaMichael P. Ryan. He doesn't have to see some of these defensive guys. Or well, he doesn't even see Dan Mullen. For all. He never played for Dan Mullen. Mm-hmm. But to Luke Del Rio's credit, uh, he's managed to fashion a injury-plagued uh, career that took him to three colleges. And all of a sudden, he's a lightning rod with the Florida football program. And is getting, uh, and that's, isn't that the key to being successful on social media? to have people talking about yeah. you and have you. And it seems like he has the shoulders that can handle it. Um, certainly he's, he knows what it takes to, um, to have, I don't know if thick skin's a great way to describe Jack Del Rio. Cause he wasn't that way with Jacksonville. He probably wasn't that way in Denver. I know he wasn't with the, with the Jaguars or whatever. He, he was sensitive about some things and called some reporters out and everything, but he knows that this comes with the territory. And I, I give the guy credit for, um, for speaking his mind and finding a, a, a different Avenue to do it a different forum from which to present uh, his whole thing. And I, I think each week he's doing something a little bit better. Now he's getting backdrops and he's, and he's uh, having guests on and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, so, so kudos to him, but is it okay? Sure. It's okay. If he can handle the, uh, the pushback from it. Yeah. I think that's it's part of the territory. I mean, if you're, if you're an ex player and you make that decision to go into the media, that comes with the job because, uh, you know, I, I had a, Interesting talk with Mick Hubert, the educators play by play guy. And I mean, Mick's a student of his, what he does. And one of his things was he, he says, look, he grew up in Chicago and people he listened to on the radio were, were what they consider homers. And that, that was his background. And he says he's never had a problem with being considered a homer in his role because he knows that 98% of the Gator fans that are people on his Telecaster Gator fans. Mm-hmm. And he knows that all those people aren't going to like him, but he's fine with that. But when you do it in, in a realm that Luke Del Rio is doing it in a, with an independent voice, you're going to have to know what you're talking about, which he does. You're going to have to be able to handle whatever criticism comes your way, which he seems to be able to handle. I think, I think he's handling it pretty well from my brief interaction with the show. I mean, I, I just see it on Twitter and people talking about it. So I give him credit, like Chris said, for, for getting a voice in what's a, a marketplace. It's pretty hard to find one because there's so many people doing it. Now, of course, what's getting him so much attention right now is the, that recent history. He does know Felipe Franks. He mm-hmm. does know Kyle Trask. He doesn't know Dan Mullen and these coaches so much, but he, he knows the strengths and weaknesses of these guys. He He's been around them. He's seen them at practice. He knows a lot of what they're doing. So that's helping him. Uh, I think as his time grows, the distance grows between his time here and, and some of the new things they're doing, maybe some of that connectivity will be lost in his uh, audience. But he'll move on to other things because he's obviously a smart enough guy and knows football. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a bridge, like you said, Adam. It's it's nothing new. It's something that's been around for many, many years. Uh, it's just. Uh, but if you are, there's some guys who make that transition into the media and you can tell they're not going to be long for it because they don't really say anything. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to say something and you're willing to really give that insight that you have that's unique because you were in the shoes of those players and those coaches, uh, then you, you can, you can develop a career. That's one reason why if you look at most of these, shows now with the uh, analysts mo- about all these guys are former players sure. or coaches in the uh, 25 30 years ago a lot of them were meet more media types the guys who have been covering the game and had that voice now those jobs are almost specifically for your play-by-play your studio host all your analysts are 
people who were in the uniform or on the sideline. And the, so, you know, like Chris said, props to Luke Del Rio. I, I just hope that he doesn't get my story this week for his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that may be trouble when they start going down our story line by line. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I remember what uh, the Gainesville Sun used to do grades on uh, yeah. post-game grades. and uh, They still do. They gave the di- – yeah, the games was and uh, Robbie Andrew gave the defense some low marks, and it was when John Hoke was the assistant coach here, and I think his wife, they, he came from Missouri, and his wife was knew a faculty member there and sent Robbie's stories to the journalism professor in Missouri, and he gave him a bunch of low grades too. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, well it is unique because Del Rio, you know, he just came from Florida. That's what he knows. You know, write what you know, right? That's what they tell journalists and writers. Uh, Florida is what he knows, and that's the audience that knows him. So it makes sense that he's doing that now, even if some of his old teammates don't like it. But certainly fans are receptive to it because he's got a following for it. So be interesting to see how that develops. But just overall, I think a lot of what you guys said is, is right on the spot. Uh, if you're going to get in that realm, you're going to have to criticize people you know, your friends, if you were a foreign player, especially a prominent one. And you just have to know that that, that goes with the territory. So what else goes with your territory is writing about Florida and Idaho. Senior day this weekend. Make sure to follow these guys on FloridaGators.com and on Twitter at GatorScott at GatorsChris. They will keep you in the know as we turn the page from that into Thanksgiving week, which is, of course, FSU. So we'll talk more about that next week. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. See you. Fred Johnson couldn't have dreamed about playing in the swamp early in his life because up until late in his high school career, he wasn't even a football player. Now, the reformed couch potato is on the verge of playing his final home game after a career that has featured more ups and downs and coaches than you can count on both hands and feet. We spoke to the South Floridian about the arc of his career and what Saturday means to him, but began by discussing what led to their latest incredible comeback. Uh, we pulled it off by, you know what I'm saying, establishing a mindset that we was not going to lose this game. And, you know, throughout the whole game, I think nobody doubted that we was going to win it. It was just about how we was going to go about doing it and executing. And when we executed at a high level, you could tell players about the form and big players was going to happen. Since it was almost entirely done on the ground, at least in the, the third and fourth quarters, what was it like in there in the trenches? How were you able to have so much success running the ball, even though they clearly knew that's what you were going to do? It was just a, you know, like I said, it was just a real mindset, like a real gritty, grimy mindset that we had every time we lined up on the ball. We was running tempo, and we knew they was guys, and it was just like we really had to go attack it and win this game because they trying to defend it, we trying to take it. It's whoever comes out on top, really. Now, you're only the fourth team in the last 15 years to have multiple comebacks of 17 points or more in the SEC. What is it about this team that that's now happened multiple times this season? You know, we've been taught to finish throughout the whole offseason. Uh, you know, attacking the workouts, attacking the games, attacking practicing. We got to finish every day, not let go of the rope, as Coach Mother would say. That's all we had. To, that's all we really had to do. Some people said it was the best game of Jordan Scarlett's career. Can you talk about when he's at full strength, what makes him such a unique runner, especially to be out there blocking for? He's a big little bowling ball that plays, <laughs> bounces off blocks, runs people over. And he's just a really, he's a, really a truck in the backfield. I feel like his best game was LSU back when we went to Death Valley last time. Hmm. I really liked him that game. I feel like this game, he really took off and showed what he could do. 
When we also saw, you know, Felipe really developed as a runner in this game. And, you know, a big part of the reason you guys won the game was because of his runs and his toughness out there. Can you talk about the way that he's developed as a runner, especially since this new staff came in? Um, he's really always been a runner. He's just never really had the opportunity, I think. And um, I feel like with this system, they allow him to get in the ball. They run the ball, you know what I'm saying? He don't shy away from tackles. He don't slide. He lower his shoulder and, you know what I'm saying, get the extra yardage the hardest way possible. So I like it. I like his mentality. I want to take things back for you a little bit. Can we talk about your family and where you grew up? I grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, bounced around growing up. Uh, finally settled in West Palm. I have four older brothers. Wow. Two sisters. Are you the youngest one of the entire family? No, I'm the youngest boy. Like, I have four older brothers, so I have two. Like, me and my twin are the same age. My twin sister are the same age, but then I have a, uh, I have a baby sister, so. Oh, wow. Now, all of them, now, all of your older brothers, were they football players as well? I mean, did, did they get you interested in playing? No, they just dabbled in high school, not really no interest. Uh, they stopped when they left uh, high school and stuff, but I wasn't really interested to like my junior year of high school and then I didn't play at all so then my senior year I went and started left tackle and the rest is history. So you didn't start playing football till your senior year of high school? Yes sir. What were you doing before that? <laughs> I would go home and play video games after school. Were you in the were you in marching band, is that correct? No, I was not. I was not in the marching band. I was literally sixth grade before I switched middle schools like after Christmas. I had a class that was banned. Okay. I had to get an instrument in <laughs> to pass the class. So I played the trumpet. And then I got rid of it when I got to my like, new school after like a semester. Now, can you still play the trumpet? No. I, I mean, I know how to do it. Like, I know how to make sound come out of it, but it's not going to be no good music to the ears. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. We, we won't ask you to play anything for us then. Um, so, yeah, so if you didn't start playing football until junior year of high school, what made you suddenly start playing? Is that That's pretty late in the game for most people. I mean, I went out my freshman year, and like two days in, I, I had like sprained my ankle bad, and I left, and then I didn't go back out. But then like my junior year, like the coach, like the officer coordinator, uh, Kent, I think he's at Oxbridge now, he, you know, told me, he was like, like I was walking into the library during lunch. He was like, like he just started like, like suck, like sucking his teeth and stuff and just gasping and like grunting and he was like Fred come here and I was like yes sir and he was like I guess like halfway through the he's like he's like you just come out to practice one day give it a try if you don't like it you don't gotta stay and I went home and told my mom and she was like okay like just go out there one day it's not that bad you can leave when you're done and then when I went out the team didn't let me leave so <laughs> so given how late in the process you were playing. What was recruiting like for you? Because, you know, recruiting starts earlier and earlier now. So if, when you didn't start playing until that late, did, would people get on your case pretty quickly or, or were those offers a little slow to come? Um, I mean, like my senior spring, like I told you, I was on the team, like my junior year, the senior spring, like one coach came out there. It was like a little, little coach. He was at Marshall Mark Ball, I think. Hmm. He's at Oregon now, the O-line coach at Oregon. And he came out and uh, I was thinking it was from one of the other guys who was really like, Really highly recruited, and um, he was like, "I need to see the offensive lineman, Fred Johnson." And he came and offered me on the spot, and then um, I was like, "A whole." It was, I went through the whole summer, no more offers, and in September, that's when Virginia Tech and all the rest came. So when all the other offers came in, what did Florida do to really separate themselves? 
I mean, the other teams, like, like a lot of schools came and they, like, looked at me and then they seen my grades, like, my transcripts. Like, they didn't really, like, want to be invested and, like, involved. But Florida stuck with me ever since they offered me and, like, throughout the whole process. And then, like, you know, I came up here. It was, like, the best situation for me and my family. And um, I wouldn't regret the choice. I wouldn't go back and do it, like, and have another choice if I could. Once you got on campus, which players served as the biggest mentors to you? Which guys that obviously aren't here anymore were, were the most important in, in your development? When I first got here, it was uh, like David Sharp, uh, Tripp Thurman, Bullard, Cox, all those guys, those older guys who really adopted us into the program and really taught us the rope. David Sharp told me how, like, you know what I'm saying, my temperament, my attitude, how I approach practice and all that how to really go about, like, handle my business here, how to, you know what I'm saying, stay off the radar, how I should, you know what I'm saying, carry myself and all that. So I looked up to him as a mentor. So when you first came on campus, you were at right tackle, and then you made the switch to right guard. How difficult was that switch, and, and where did that idea come from? Um, Like, you know what I'm saying, like, well, when it came in, it's like my sophomore year, and then um the right guard had, to, I think Tyler Jordan had to get surgery on his eye. So then it came to the point where, like, they was looking for a right guard to play the position. And Wani was excelling at tackle, and they was like, Fred, okay, go to guard. You know what I'm saying? Try to see if you can work it. And then it was just, like, the need for the team, and I felt like I could, like, provide that need. I felt like, you know what I'm saying, I deserved to be on the field. So I adapted, I adopted my role and really tried to perfect it. I feel like most people think the offensive line is just the offensive line. They don't know the intricacies of the positions. Can you talk about how different those positions are and, and what what challenges come with, with each of them? Uh, I feel like you have to have more of a finesse in that guard. You have to have more of a, like, a, a grit, a more of a, like, because you have to handle the bigger people, the bigger, stouter people, and move them off the ball. At tackle, you have to have more of a finesse. And you have to have that, like, edge to you. So, like, they're two of the same position, but they're different in, like, how they handle stuff and, like, how you got to, you know what I'm saying, block. You're going through a coaching change before your senior year. It has to be really challenging. What was the, the toughest part of that transition for you? The toughest part about transition for me was really trying to, like, learn, get this offense to be, like, the back of my head. Like, I know it and I understand it like I did uh, the last offense before that. You know, my legs, was very more detail oriented than uh, Max, so it was really just adapting to that, learning learning his style of coaching and learning his style of, of the program how he wanted it uh, run. We talked earlier about some of the guys that helped you when you first came into the program. As you've grown in your career, which underclassmen do you feel like you've had the biggest impact on and served as an important mentor to? Um, I feel like I had the most impact on like on like Richard Garage, you know. Uh, we recruited Hagee, we recruited Stone, and I feel like we really, like, you know what I'm saying, they came in, like, understanding, and we really just taught them, like, the ropes again, like how David Sharp and Tim Thurman and them boys taught, taught us how what it is to be a student athlete. As you reflect back on your career coming toward the end of it, what moments or games stand out the most? Do you have any you sit back and you just think about frequently? Um, I think about the LSU game a lot. Uh, we was in Death Valley. I think about the Kentucky game where we won by like a field goal there. Like my first, I think it was my, was it my first SEC game? It was one of those. Two. It was one of the ones we was away. So, and then I thought about the, the, the games, like a lot of the games this year, like Tennessee, Mississippi State, 
um, a lot of those games is just to, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. to be able to go out there with my team and really just give leave it all out there for them and being able to come away with a dub. If you could go back now and tell the freshman version of yourself anything, if you could give yourself <laughs> advice now, having some perspective, what what would that be? Um, I would tell myself to really uh, hunker down, you know what I'm saying, not have a, like a hot head, just take mm-hmm. things that happen like, and don't don't let it don't let it affect you and get you like you know what I'm saying get you off your uh like make you come out of character. Mm-hmm. When you have some time off the field, what do you enjoy doing outside football? Uh, what I enjoy doing outside football is um eating Oreos, <laughs> the double stuff. The only only double stuff. Only double stuff. I don't do the red velvet. I mean the red velvet good, but you know what I'm saying. I can't eat the red velvet. I'm more classic man. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> you heard that song before. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. do you? Is this important though? Do you eat them straight up, yes. or do you get rid of the icing first and then eat the cookies? No, no, no. You you get a cup. See, you put some milk in it, right? Then you get a spoon. Now you okay. gotta ask what I'm gonna do with this spoon. <laughs> well, and I'm gonna put two Oreos in there at one time. Okay. But before all that, you have to get the party size because it's thirty three percent bigger than the, the family <laughs> size. But then you have to uh, put two in at a time. You know, saying dunk one, leave one floating. When that one's ready, scoop it up and eat it like it's cereal. Then repeat the process. Okay, I once went through a whole pack in like three days this summer. <laughs> it wasn't my proudest moment. I had to tell my nutritionist I was guilty and um. I really like eating Oreos. I like playing the game, you know what I'm saying, with my friends and my teammates. Other things I like doing, like eating food. So that's a big plus. <laughs> um, I really like playing the game and then relaxing and sleeping. I have narcolepsy, so it's kind of a big, like it's kind of a big deal with me. How does that manifest itself? Freshman, sophomore year, I was sleeping. I was sleeping all the time. I fell asleep on an RTS bus. I went all the <laughs> way around campus like three times. <laughs> I kind of got poked with a broomstick to wake up. It's old man yelling at me. And uh, I was late to workouts and stuff, but I was telling them, like, you know what I'm saying? I was up for them. I just fell asleep. Nobody believed me until I got in trouble like three times and they would have got me tested. Are you ever sleeping through practice or you staying awake through practice? No, nah, I stay awake through practice. Still, okay. It's just them idle, it's just them idle moments. And oh, then, wow. like, like, you know, transferring from college, I mean, from high school to college, I was sleep deprived enough. And then when I really like started practicing and stuff, I really, really started falling asleep everywhere. But once it was diagnosed, they're able to help you with that, though. Yeah, sir. They was able to help me give me the right medication. Okay, you know good. Yeah. And help me with my sleeping patterns. All right. Well, final questions for you. We're gonna bring it back to senior day. I know this is a very important day for you and the rest of your class. What's going through your mind right now in, in terms of kind of the weight of this moment and and what this means for you? I don't want it to come. <laughs> um, I don't want it to come at all. I don't want to have to think about me being in the slump my last time and being around this group of guys as this year closes. I feel like it's not going to really hit me till it hit me. I don't know whether it's going to be this Saturday, just about leaving the stadium one more time, and then going into the bowl game and spending my last game with them. So I'm really excited for it and really dreading it at the same time. It's bittersweet, you know. Yeah. When you run out of that tunnel for the last time Saturday, who's going to be waiting there for you at midfield, and, and what's that going to be like? It's going to be my mom, my dad, my two sisters. They're going to be waiting for me. Um, I don't know. I mean, they've been with me through it all. They've been with me when I didn't want to do nothing, when I just went home and played video games. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to finish my football season this summer and then graduate in the, in the spring. 
Well, I know it's been a long journey for you. And obviously, as we've learned, it's been a, a very fascinating one. So thank you so much for your time, Fred. And we wish you a lot of luck. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice. And please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Florida hosts Idaho for Senior Day on Saturday at noon on ESPNU and the Gator IMG Sports Network. We'll be back a little early next week because of Thanksgiving, so catch our new episode on Wednesday to get ready for Florida FSU. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.